With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. If you love the Intelligence Squared podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening and early episodes too. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. For today's show, we're marking one year since Western forces' chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. What will the future hold under the rule of the Taliban? Here's our host, the journalist and broadcaster, Manveen Rana. In August 2021, the United States and NATO forces withdrew from Afghanistan after two decades in the country. The Taliban, a militant Islamist group that ran Afghanistan in the late 1990s, swept back to power without much resistance and captured Kabul on August the 15th, 2021. The withdrawal was widely seen as a humiliation in the West and a betrayal in many parts of Afghanistan as the country was once again plunged into crisis. One year on, how do we make sense of the withdrawal and its wider consequences? To help us answer that question, we're joined by three guests tonight. Shabnam Nasimi, policy advisor to the UK Home Office focusing on Afghan resettlement. She's the founder and executive director of Conservative Friends of Afghanistan, a group that exists to promote understanding and support for Afghanistan in the United Kingdom. We're also joined by Jeremy Bowen, the BBC's Middle East editor since 2005. He's reported in Afghanistan many times over the years, including during the fall of the Soviet withdrawal of Afghanistan in 1989 and after the US withdrawal in 2021. He's the author of the forthcoming title, The Making of the Modern Middle East, A Personal History, which will be published in September 2022. And finally, we're joined by Paul Mason, journalist, writer and filmmaker. He's the former economics editor for BBC Newsnight and Channel 4 News and the author of books including How to Stop Fascism, Post-Capitalism and Clear Bright Future, A Radical Defense of the Human Being. Welcome all. I wanted to really start by asking each of you 
to take us back to this time last year and that moment when Kabul fell, where were you when you first heard about it? And what was your reaction as you watched those scenes at Kabul airport? Shabnam, I'll go to you first as, as somebody from the country. Well, the trauma of last year, I think, haunts many, um, especially when you have family in Afghanistan. And although Afghans are private people who often choose to conceal their emotions, they uh, visibly carry their pain. Afghanistan's lost another generation to terror. Uh, a year on, everyone seems to be marking the anniversary of Taliban takeover. We're going to see an influx of uh, media platforms, um, political platforms, NGOs hosting different seminars and events, talking about what what's changed in that one year since the Taliban have been in power. But it's worth being reminded that for the people of Afghanistan, every day brings bad news. A new fall every time they think Afghanistan can't pos- possibly fall any further. There's a new ban on their basic human, uh, human rights. So we're not really marking an anniversary. We're, we're still continuing to see Afghanistan fall further and further uh, away from uh, into darkness. And last year, honestly speaking, it was very devastating because whilst there were talks, peace talks between the US and the Taliban in Doha, there was a peace agreement that was signed. No one really thought that Afghanistan would return to the Taliban in such a manner. You know, most people expected at least a smooth transition, some time. Uh, people expected if there was going to be a withdrawal process, it would be in an organized way, at least. You know, 20 years of involvement and investment of working with, with the people of Afghanistan to, to, to create a democracy and to create freedom. No one expected such a withdrawal. And it was difficult um, for me personally as well. It did bring a lot of memories because um, I came to the UK uh, in the late 1990s during the first Taliban uh, uh, period of Taliban rule. Um, and no one thought that in the last 20 years that the next generation that were born after 2001 would have to suffer in, uh, under Taliban rule again. Um, and what made it worse, actually, most recently, uh, was seeing the devastating, of course, uh, Ukraine-Russia uh, crisis and war um, and the way the world reacted to that. Of course, it's a different war. It's a different region. Uh, and it's a different um, uh, climate. Um, but seeing the support that was given there um, made it even harder. Uh, and I think it, the, the sense of betrayal for people in Afghanistan has become worse since the Ukraine crisis. Um, so it's, you know, it's still fresh. Um, the, the, the withdrawal, you know, a year on is it, it's not something we can say, you know, it's a phase that's passed. It's very much new and, and current even today. And Jeremy, for you, having seen having seen governments change in that country in, in the, the wildest form, um, mm. how did that feel this time last year? Well, um, I wasn't there when it happened and uh, I was watching it on TV and I was, uh, well, I was struck, of course, by these appalling scenes of chaos to start with at the airport. I did think once the Americans had said that they were pulling out, that the Taliban would eventually take over. I didn't think it would happen quite as quickly as it did, like a lot of people. 
Um, I Well, I thought back to, I was actually at the airport when the last Soviet plane left in 1989, same airport. So I had a sense of, I don't know, time passing, one circle closing, maybe another opening. And that was a very orderly withdrawal, as a matter of fact. Uh, none of the crowds at the airport, um, they just filed onto the last plane and they took off and that was it. And in the distance, there was the shelling coming from the Mujahideen and that only really, um, they thought at the time that Kabul would fall instantly and it didn't, in fact. It, the uh, the communist government they left behind lasted until 1992, another three years or so. Um, but what I also thought about was, you know, milestones along the way. I was in New York um, after 9-11. I went over there to report for the BBC. And... Uh, and everything that has come from that, that I've seen the consequences of 9-11 that has really, many ways, in big parts of the world, defined what's happened. Uh, the American invasion, the catastrophic American invasion of Iraq in 2003, after the, uh, the much smoother, from their point of view, invasion of Afghanistan. So, you know, I've seen a lot, you know, I thought about a lot of those milestones along the way. And what I thought of as well was a tremendous sense of waste, that after 20 years of killing, 20 years of trying to establish a, a better way to live in Afghanistan as well, which benefited some people, but not everybody, uh, and the undoubted advances that had been made in terms of media freedoms, women's rights, and so on, uh, that, you know, all that was going to wash away and that's exactly what's happened in the last year. And Jeremy, you you know, you've reported on Afghanistan many times during that twenty year period. You've seen the country change, you've seen the war change, you've seen, you know, as you mentioned it, you've seen it develop. You know, you've even got to a stage where you sort of had hipster neighborhoods in 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 Kabul. Did you ever think it would end like this? To be honest, I didn't think the foundations were deep. I thought that um it wasn't an Afghan solution. Solutions were being uh, shaped and imposed on the country by others. And that while people were benefiting in the cities, in rural areas, things were very different. And the war going on was disrupting people's lives enormously. After the, uh, the Americans pulled out, I was down in, in Helmand province, the heartland of the Taliban. And I said, and there was a woman there I interviewed who'd lost three sons in the war one fighting for the Taliban, the other two fighting for the government. They'd been press gang ganged into the army after their older brother was killed fighting for the Taliban. And in the end, all three of them were killed. And, I, and she was saying, good riddance, that awful government, and maybe we've got a better chance now. And I said, well, hang on, weren't women's rights a bit, uh, you know, improved no end, at least under that government? And she said to me, this is someone living in a small village in Helmand province, very traditional lifestyle. She said, how could it, you improve women's lives when they came here and they killed our sons, they killed our brothers, they killed our husbands? So she felt her life hadn't improved. Now, has it improved in the last year? Well, I haven't been back to see. I kind of doubt it. Um, so, yeah, I felt that after the invasion, in just after 9-11, what would have been better, I think, would be if those invaders had got out and left Afghans to try and sort this one out themselves. Uh, because quite clearly, 20 years of trying to impose nation building and 20 years of occupation and 20 years of 
um, military intervention, well, that didn't work either. And Paul, for you, watching events this time last year, watching the cataclysm <clears throat> in, in Kabul, what were your thoughts? Well, I should start by saying that uh, as a journalist, I'd never covered Afghanistan and never specialised in, in, in Central Asia or the Middle East. Um, but I got dragged into it um, by sh- sheer accident because I've got the email here, 23rd of June last year, um, from my friend who has run an, an Afghan NGO. Um, he said, after 13 years of incredible struggle, the NGO is now fast disintegrating. Many of my closest friends are, are in the process of breaking. We are currently trying to get some of them out of the country and we are powerless and overwhelmed. So that's the 23rd of June. That's not July and it's not early August. They knew, they had, these were a mainly group of human rights workers who are from the Hazara community um, and had been working on stuff like post-conflict trauma, reconciliation, you know, I mean, stuff that now seems completely irrelevant. So I, so by 7th of July, um, I'd kind of got dragged into the process of trying to, um, trying to get them uh, evacuated. Um, and one of the problems which I hope we'll discuss is that although the UN, the US, NATO and UK have been kind of core components of this intervention, if you're from an NGO that's funded by Germany, Denmark and Sweden, you hadn't a hope in hell. Even no matter how central your work had been to the nation building of getting out. And so on the day itself, the 14th of August, I found myself in the ridiculous situation of, like many journalists and many MPs, we were calling in favours and contacts to fairly senior members of the British government to just basically, I mean, honestly, passing photographs taken by people at the perimeter of Kabul airport saying, we are here, to ridiculously senior members of the MOD um, who were then passing them uh, through intermediaries down to ridiculously tactical levels of the guys on the other side of the fence. Um, Sad to say for my, my, I've never met any of them, uh, but my, 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 my long distance friends, um, they never got through the perimeter fence. They were beaten up. uh, Yeah. They were at that gate, um, the, the one where the bomb went off, but but it missed them. And they got out um, via a very perilous coach journey. They gave up on the on Kabul, basically. They got out um, about 14 days after the takeover um, to Pakistan. And the, the happy ending is that they are, every single one of them, 170 people, is now in Canada. But the, I saw from the inside, and hopefully we'll talk about the chaos, Um inside the British governance system. Uh, and it also brought very close to me, these were people who, you know, the, the NGOs that had funded them from Germany, Sweden, Denmark, were fairly left-wing. These were not people who would necessarily have supported the intervention, but they wanted to make the best of it with conf- post-conflict resolution, uh, that kind of, the kind of stuff that, that, that NGOs do, humanitarian NGOs do everywhere. And the, they couldn't believe how quickly the rug was pulled from them. And then, I mean, they could sadly now do believe how how insouciantly Western governments just left them uh, to, 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 to stand at that perimeter fence. Um, so it was an education for me uh, that, uh, you know, and I was still uh, engaged with the wider geopolitical uh, impact of it and criticism of the whole um, the whole intervention 
But uh, yeah, that's that's my memory of the period itself. And Paul, from the conversations you were having, did you get a sense of where things were going wrong within the system? What, why the withdrawal was so chaotic? Well, it, the Foreign Affairs Committee of the British Parliament said said the basic identified the basic problem. Arab, the system for getting out um, British Army interpreters, was late, slow, but kind of worked. But no one had thought, what do we do about people who are intrinsic to the effort of the West to create some kind of stable and legal governance in Afghanistan? And what went wrong was that nobody thought about them. Whatever else went wrong, and the FCDO itself has tried to get itself off the hook um, for appalling crisis management, you, would have bit, you wouldn't have needed crisis management had you not um, had you thought about what you were going to do with these the, the human, you know, in my my bit of journalism, we we call we talk about human capital. These were the West's human capital. You know, the feminists, the women's rights activists, the the this was an arts group that had worked with right across communities. And my goodness, the the, the what went wrong for them is that nobody even nobody had thought these people exist. We have created this kind of, if you want to be very unkind. Potemkin village of liberalism in Kabul, and what are we going to do about it? And I think the reason for that is that I, I have nothing but praise for, the, obviously, for the soldiers on the ground, but for the MOD itself. Um, the MOD, the military side of the MOD, and the political side did the right thing. In the end, however, no one had thought. I just think I think the West. We're all sitting here and said none of us could have imagined or did imagine the rapid and absolute collapse of the Ghani government. Um, and so nobody ever thought about it. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the Arab school. And to be honest, there were, there were plenty of problems with, with that too. And that was the part of, yeah. of the system that functioned. Um, Jeremy, Shabnam earlier talked about how the Ukraine war af- afterwards, you know, obviously causes quite a lot of bitterness for people who watched Afghanistan being left, being left on their own. Um, in addition to that, you know, sort of as... As Paul just highlighted, if you were from a German charity or from, you know, a, a Danish charity, there, it, there was a real sense with that moment with withdrawal that this was an American enterprise. That everybody else that sort of found out they were withdrawing after the Americans had already decided it. There, were, there was an entirely American-led, and it felt like it could be the end of NATO as we know it. Has Ukraine changed that, or has it just decided? <laughs> have we actually gone back and, and learned the lessons we should have done from that withdrawal? Well. Um... On the Ukraine point, first of all, more directly about the support that uh, Ukraine was given, if we think back to when the invasion actually happened on the 24th of February, actually most Western governments were, apart from sanctions, were preparing to wash their hands of the whole thing. Uh, They were absolutely taken by surprise by the way that the Russians were militarily not nearly as strong as they expected, and the Ukrainians were much more efficient militarily than they ever thought. Uh, And so that's why a month later, by the time that it was clear that the Ukrainians were winning the Battle of Kiev, a lot of people in the West were, well, you could say jumping on the bandwagon and suddenly saying, hang on, we're going to we're going to we're going to back these guys after all because to start with all the estimates were well two weeks there'll be uh, you know russians goose stepping down the central boulevards of kiev um you know zelensky has said that 
I don't know if it's true, but the story that Zelensky puts forward is that the the lead elements of the Russian columns that were approaching the capital actually had, they found after they destroyed them, they found that there were ceremonial uniforms in some of the vehicles ready for the victory parade. So everybody was expecting things to be different. And I think the what we've seen in Ukraine is the beginning of the game, even though it's been going on since 2014 and before that, really, 2008. Um in Afghanistan, it was the end of the game. There was enormous, you can argue it wasn't well spent, but hundreds of billions of dollars were plowed, mostly by the Americans, into Afghanistan. And to, to you know, move on to your other point, I think that's why the Americans thought it was their show. As far as foreigners were concerned, it was their show because logistically, other foreign embassies, uh, governments, the British, were unable to function without American logistics. And they were, they, you know, they weren't just the big brother. They were the daddy. They were everybody there as far as the foreigners were concerned. And while, of course, if you were a Danish NGO, particularly of a left wing hue, you might find yourself right at the back of the queue. Well, maybe the right at the back of the Western queue anyway. The Afghan queue would have been going on further, uh, you know, into the, into the dust. Um, the you know I think you have to accept in these kinds of things that people try and bring out their own people. The Americans say they took out one hundred and twenty thousand people in that airlift, and they say that they, you know, they had to leave people behind. They should have taken out who were working for them. So you know it was a mess. It was a terrible, terrible mess. And actually, the Americans only had at that point just under three thousand troops in the country. If that was the difference between the collapse of the government and the chaos that ensued and not, well, you know, it wasn't, I'd say that the, uh, you know, if you, the cost there for the Americans has been much greater in terms of um, strategic damage, lost prestige, uh, perception that as as allies, they're only as reliable until they decide not to be reliable anymore. Uh, all those kinds of things and keeping on a couple of thousand more troops in a place where, you know, when you think they have hundreds of thousands of troops based in dozens of bases around the world. But clearly, of course, before for um, the Biden administration, it was symbolic, ending one of those forever wars. And they wanted everybody out by the the 20th anniversary of 9-11. You can see the, you know, the political appeal of that. But in terms of the wider damage it's done, uh, I mean, let's forget to America's geostrategic position to Afghans themselves has been, you know, considerable. And Paul, I mean, do you think this is sort of, you know, following on from that that catastrophic withdrawal, sort of seeing the West come together much more over Ukraine? You know, is is NATO back? Well, I think NATO is at the strongest it's ever been. But I have to say that as someone who, you know, I, I'm now involved in politics. I'm not a neutral journalist. I am part of the labor movement. I spend a lot of my time trying to explain to people why NATO is essential to the national security and survival of, of British democracy. But it, it, but but for every... Uh, for every positive argument, there is always the Afghan. There is always Afghanistan. There is always look not not simply the the argument of, of many on the far left you know, that it was a terrible imperialist thing to do, but simply that there's also a, an argument that says even if you liked the idea of going in, that what has been proven that the, the, the you know, QED it didn't work. Um, the nation building didn't work for reasons we could discuss, and and the the drawdown was 
catastrophic. What I think it signaled, um, I don't think there's a direct causal line between, you know, the, the, the chaos at Kabul and the end, and then Putin decides to go into Ukraine. But I think the two, what links the two is the fragility of American governance. Because it's not, you could say Trump wanted to get out, he signed the Doha deal, Biden promised to promised to uphold it and wanted to get out. You could say all of that. And you could say, well, fine, we don't agree with that, but that's their sovereign right. But the, then to do it without any um, realistic intelligence assessment of what was going to happen to the Ghani government, and then to be scrambling, um, tr- literally treading over your allies to get out, it was a signal of weakness. And I think it will resonate just as strongly in Beijing as it, as it, as it has done in um in, in Moscow, um, I think that the let's be honest about the difference. There's one difference between Ukraine and, and and Afghanistan. No Western troops, other than the unofficially there, not really there, special forces. No Western troops are in there during the conflict, uh, and yet Western troops spent twenty years in Afghanistan. Um, that's one difference. The other difference is. These are peer. We are now in peer competition. We are now trying to deter Vladimir Putin from invading Eastern Europe and triggering a third world war. So, I have no problem with Western governments taking that at an order of magnitude more seriously than than they did Afghanistan. I think retros- what the big problem I have with the way our government is dealing and has dealt with this is that. There doesn't seem to be any willingness to do even formal lessons learned. That you know, Boris Johnson stood up on the I think it was the eighth of July and said there is no military path to victory for the Taliban. Uh, you know, I, I remember it well because it was the day after one of these NGO people had emailed me saying we're getting out, they're coming. So I would like to both the British government and NATO need to do formal, overt, public lessons learned and, and allow themselves to be criticized. Otherwise, what they're demonstrating to our adversaries and our friends, we're not we're not a learning organization. We're not learning from the mistakes we make. Shabnam, beyond the, the geopolitics, you know, since that moment last August, life for ordinary Afghans has clearly changed markedly. What are you hearing from people? What is life like now under the new Taliban? Thank you, Ranveen. Just if before I get on that, if I can just come back to a few points that have been raised by Jeremy and Paul. The first around um, the intervention in 2001 and how we should have gone in but left very quick, quickly. No, you can't combat counterterrorism in a country like Afghanistan, which has no, inf- which when we went in had no infrastructure or governance structure um, and not nation build. It doesn't work. You either go in as a full package or you don't. Uh, but the second point around the fact that we should have left it to Afghans, and it's something I've been hearing over the last year quite frequently with every post that I put up on Twitter or any of these discussions that I've had, let's uh, let Afghans decide is what I hear in the response that I get, which in some ways can become quite infuriating. Firstly, because many people in Afghanistan don't accept the Taliban as Afghans or as people from that land. And second of all, if we if we say we go with the point that let's leave it to Afghans and that's the only way to do it, we've left it to Afghans over the last year. What, what have we got as a result? More uh, human rights abuses, oppression of women, no economy, 
no uh, uh, employment or jobs, poverty. So actually, Afghans need our help. And the po- point that Paul made earlier that, well, the difference between Ukraine and Afghanistan is that um, Ukraine has no Western troops. Yes, it has no Western troops, but aid and money and weapons are being sent, billions of that. Afghanistan, and this is, I think, a misunderstanding of the what happened in August last year um, when it comes to why the Afghan military potentially didn't fight. It wasn't because they couldn't. It was because their weapons were taken away from them. There was no logistics, no equipment. Where were you expecting them to fight with sticks and and, and stones? It's unrealistic and it makes no sense. And finally, 20 years is nothing for a country like Afghanistan. What was actually missing was commitment and persistence and patience because people wanted to live in liberal freedom and, and, and democracy. They wanted... Our, our allies to stick it out and and fight for for, for the rights of, of ordinary people in Afghanistan, but people, but uh, you know things move on. Twenty years apparently wasn't enough, and and yes, lots of sacrifices were made. Absolutely, that's not that's not something I disagree with, but sacrifices have to be made for global security. And whilst we're fighting in Ukraine because of the fact that we don't want Russia to begin potentially a third world war, fighting in Afghanistan means combating Islamist extremism, which now, as we've seen most recently in the last week, potentially the Taliban are now providing safe havens to the Al-Qaeda again. So we're going round in circle without understanding that Afghanistan is the heart of Asia. Any implication, like Paul said, we return to Afghanistan whenever we talk about NATO, about international intervention, because Afghanistan is the heart of Asia. We need stability in that region in order to ensure global security. But sorry, sorry about that. I had to sort of um, just come back to those two points. But um, Manveen, you mentioned the change in people's lives. Yeah, um, what is life um, like under under the Taliban now? Look, it's it's Afghanistan is now facing, as the United Nations uh, have mentioned countless times, the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. National reserves reserves have been stolen. Uh, sorry, frozen. Uh, the Taliban are unable to run uh, an administrative force. Uh, a government, um, those with the means uh, and many without have had to, have had to leave the country. Uh, so a lot of uh, um, brain power and, and, and the new generation and those who could have stayed and helped have had to leave for fear of their lives. Uh, women in particular have borne the brunt of the Taliban's hardline interpretation of, of Islam. They're barred from traveling alone, from they've been told what to wear. Thousands have lost their jobs, uh, causing misery for families who are dependent and are, were dependent uh, on their incomes, like my family in, in Kabul, where you know, my, my aunts and uncles um, and cousins, sorry, female cousins were, were teachers, were journalists, worked uh, and now having to stay at home. Uh, so there's no source of income. And more importantly, girls are bar- uh, banned from attending sen- secondary schools. Nowhere in the world, you, you, can you name me a country where girls are not allowed to go to school? Um, half of the population uh, have lost their jobs. And um, you know, there are estimates that by the mid of this year, around 97% of the population uh, are living in poverty. Uh, the Taliban have, uh, the, the Human Rights Watch have reported um, uh, enforced uh, uh, disappearances by the Taliban, executions. Uh, there have been revenge killings. Um, and, and just today, there have been reports where 
as uh, earlier to my point that Afghanistan keeps falling, um, that the airline, Ariana, uh, one of Afghanistan's main airlines, have asked women not to return to work. Um, and so there's no female crew. Um, when it comes to the situation on the ground, it is darkness, complete darkness. Uh, there is nothing, there is no hope, nothing to live for. And just to the earlier point, that the intervention was wrong, uh, as Jeremy and Paul have mentioned, that we shouldn't have gone in the first place. It was done incorrectly. And, and we, you know, the argument that the West have killed thousands of Afghans, which I'm not disputing, but actually there was hope because of that intervention. People knew that with all the suffering and all the terrorist attacks that, 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 that occurred day in, day out by the Taliban, uh, uh, it's worth saying, um, there was hope that, that they had friends standing by them. There's no hope anymore. Afghans don't think anyone was going to stand by them now. And I am, I think, like many Afghans, we're devastated that people are saying, well, it's not our business anymore. You've got to figure it out. Um, we live in a globalized world, everything interlinks. And it's sad that only when interests uh, are there uh, uh, d does the international community respond. Um, over the last year specifically, media has uh, completely been diminished across the country. So whilst we may not be hearing a lot about Afghanistan in the media, that does not mean that things aren't happening across different parts of the provinces, across different rural communities. Young girls are being sold into and forced into marriage. Uh, babies are being sold. People can't afford a piece of bread. Uh, these are re realities. And it's honestly heartbreaking that in the 21st century, such a human tragedy exists. Um, that there would have been, that there are ways that we could have prevented this. And there still is, uh, which I'll come on uh, a little later. But um, life is, is definitely very, very difficult. Um, and sometimes I think because we're so far from it and it, we can't compare it to the fact that Ukraine is, is a European country and it's much closer to home, we don't understand that um, I don't think there's any country in the world uh, or any people in the world that's suffering as much as uh, people in Afghanistan are. Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash intelligence. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Jeremy, do you, want to, um, do you want to come back on that? And also just tell us what you're sort of hearing on the ground about what life is like for Afghans now. Well, I mean, to start with, there's an enormous amount of hunger. Um, the World Food Programme before the, the UN World Food Programme, before the collapse of the government last year and the Taliban takeover was feeding a million people a month. Now they feed 18 million people a month. So there's been an enormous humanitarian program there. Clearly, it hasn't reached everybody, but um, the indications appear to be that it's staved off some of the worst predictions of the bad things that could happen, though terrible things have are still happening, are going on even as we speak. You know, is it sustainable for the UN to keep on flying in pallets, load of, pallets loads of cash, you know, shrink wrap to try and fund the operation? And, you know, probably not, I would say. Um, you know, in terms of, of the point that um, uh, you were making, Shadnam, about... Uh, whether or not it was a good idea to try and build a nation. I think you've got to go by results. I mean, maybe nation building at the time, I thought nation building made a lot of sense. You know, there was the uh, various arguments that were made at the time about the American um, actions after 9-11, which was that if you break it, you're responsible for it. You've got to fix it. Um, but you've also got to look at the results. So maybe the issue was not so much... The idea of building a nation, the the problem was the way they went about it and the kind of nation they tried to build because clearly it didn't work because the minute that, that the Americans pulled out, the whole edifice, corrupt government, uh, inefficiency, a corrupt military as well, uh, and they did have weapons, I'm afraid. They did. They're billions. The Americans had plowed billions into trying to build up an Afghan army. And for all kinds of reasons, uh, that Afghan army in the end had lost faith in what they were, were doing. And uh, so when it came to it, a lot of them did deals locally and, you know, effectively did a deal and surrendered without without doing a great deal of fighting because I think they thought, well, what was the point? You've got to fight for something. And if you're fighting for uh, a, a state which at, the, at, the, at its core is rotten because of corruption, and it's not just in Afghanistan, in loads of countries that I report from, corruption is like a cancer. 
It's a cancer in the heart of any state. Western governments are hit by it too, but not in such an extreme way. And I think that that hollows out a state, hollows out the institutions, which were fragile anyway. And so when it came to it, the whole house of cards collapsed uh, because the roots were, were not sadly deep after 20 years of attempts at nation building. But clearly, the model that they used didn't work. Paul, you you work in politics now, um, advising politicians. What would you say about what we do now? You know, given the level of, of poverty and desperation that Jeremy just outlined, what should we be doing? Well, let me just make clear, I, I'm still a journalist. I, I don't see a, 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 there's no contradiction between doing journalism and being politically active. Uh, I may have occasionally advised Labour politicians, but that doesn't mean they've taken my advice. Um, what, 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 what should, yeah, okay, well, what, what I would advise the government now is to first of all remember, some, so think, think long term. When I was 20, uh, British society was full of Polish emigres. You could go to a cafe in London, Dakis, and meet all the cloak and dagger people from the Cold War. Uh, my own town, you know, was full of uh, ex-Ukrainian and Polish miners. And they were, with, like the Afghans who have come, there were tens of thousands after the Second World War of people who had fled the Soviet uh, Eastern Europe and seemed marooned and beleaguered and lost in their own world. By the time I was 40... Poland was a free country and many of them had gone back and what that proved to be an amazing investment for the West in and, democ and, and world democracy and rule of law that people that people who'd been Polish emigres in British society in the post-war period could take a lot back to them to a Poland that had been freed of, of Russian uh, influence. Now, I think we need to be thinking long-term about the investment we make as the West into all these and there will be still people coming out. There will be people on boats across the channel. There will be people legally arriving through um, the, all the different uh, uh, evacuation schemes. We need to be thinking about, uh, I fully agree uh, with the idea of Afghan sovereignty and, and, and the idea that Afghans should lead uh, the the future of Afghanistan. But I, I think we need, we need to be far less sort of, let's breathe a sigh of relief, they're all out of hotels and they're now in, in, in crappy social accommodation. Far more thinking, what is the investment we want to make in people who have invested their entire lives in the product project of nation building? What can we do to invest in a future? Because as you say, um, Chabnam, it's not just the centre of Asia. Asia itself is a developing region. It will develop. Um, it's not you when you see you know girls in education or feminist groups or human rights groups. These are not anomalies that would have never existed without uh, Western intervention. They are the the seeds of a future democratic Afghanistan. So that's the first thing. I think the other thing is I go back to it. You can. In business, the idea that if you know you're in, you, you have a project at the absolute center of your entire business model, and it collapses ignominiously in a shape in, in a space of ten days. The idea that a business would then say, "Oh well, there's not much we can learn about it." It's it's a bit like you know, it's the charge of the light brigade. You know, uh, oh well, six hundred people galloped down a, a valley in in Crimea. There's not much we can learn about that. Um, we I want the military. I want the foreign office. I want the we, for example, we have a national security 
Council in Britain. It, it's nothing like the American National Security Council. It's not independent of the cabinet. It's a subcommittee of the cabinet. And it is quite clear to me, as it is to the Foreign Affairs Committee, that it did not function during that crisis. It played no coordinating role. It was virtually useless. Now, what we need to do is learn very fast about how to handle unexpected crises like that. 2024, we could see a Trump or Trump-like presidency in America could pull straight out of NATO. How are you going to handle that crisis? Instead, what I, I fear, I mean, I do interface with politicians, mainly on the Labour side, but some on the Conservative side, and it's very rare that you come across people who have the sufficient doominess in their minds to think everything could go wrong. Uh, things are not as they are as they have been for 30 years. So my advice is to them is to start framing everything around the geopolitical crisis that we are in and stop ignoring it and stop wishing it away uh, because it will now shape it. It'll shape the British politics of energy will be will be shaped by Russia over the over the winter. The politics of migration in Britain will carry on being shaped by the crises at the periphery of, of the West. So. Um, think in a crisis mode is my kind of short, pithy advice to those who would listen. Shabnam, for you, what would you like to see Britain and America doing now? And does it include accepting that we have to work with the Taliban if we want to be able to make a difference on the ground? Um, well, look, I think the Taliban regime, as we've seen is in Kabul, is horribly divided um, there are groups from different parts of the country and different generation of fighters that are arguing over control, uh, though the results are hard to guess and the outlook for a united government is very, very slim. Uh, we do need to be thinking about a future that includes, unfortunately, another destabilized Afghanistan. And I agree with the point that Paul made that Asia is evolving, it's modernizing, it's changing um, and it's wrong for the heart of Asia, Afghanistan, right in the middle to exist in such a way um, in, in its current form. It needs to move with the times as well. And we need to find a solution. Um, the, the, the way things are going right now is that the, the chances of a new civil war, unfortunately, are very real. Um, and the likelihood that it may include neighbours supporting proxy forces is high. And that includes China and Russia playing a big role here. And this is going to be, you know, this is going to have huge consequences for us all. Um, first, firstly, the chances of migration will rise, not just from Afghanistan, but from Pakistan and other countries that are going to be drawn uh, into parts of this conflict. Uh, secondly, the likelihood of violence hitting other states are also increasing. And thirdly, the probable humanitarian disaster that's evolving could act as a recruitment uh, mechanism for terrorist groups, um, which which will definitely make the, the region and potentially um, us in, in Europe, um, our security, um, much, much more difficult to control. Um, we need to be thinking about how we defend our interests here in the UK, but also supporting our allies and those who stood by us in Afghanistan. And that just doesn't, it doesn't have to mean militarily if that's not the option and that's not the alternative we're going to take moving forward. Um, over the next coming years, I think we will need to have uh, engage in some way or form with others who have interests in Afghanistan. Um, and that may even include working with, with China, potentially, um, because they have already invested in Afghanistan. They clearly are 
looking to uh, foot, uh, put a footprint in the country. Uh, we may need to work around how we bring nations together to, to change the future of Afghanistan uh, in a different way, you know, an altern- in a way that potentially in- includes the voices and, and the choices of people in Afghanistan, which um, I completely agree over the last 20 years, didn't happen. You know, the, there was a lack of consultation with ordinary people, the political elite that was built not only in the last 20 years, but over the last 40 years, those who, who were at the top, the leaders, including Karzai and, and so many other figureheads, they've been in power for so long that any conversation in Afghanistan has always been with them. We've never actually tried to reach out to communities across Afghanistan, different ethnic groups, different religious groups, and find out how they want to live, what kind of Afghanistan they want. Um, you know, we have learned that the cost of ignoring Afghanistan and Kabul and um, and what, you know, what, what that means um, and intervening too late. Um, and I think the warning we have from Afghanistan today is that neither is going to work, but there may be an alternative. And here, UN agencies and countries in the region could throw light on the problems. Um, I think we need to continue to raise awareness of what's happening on the ground. Unfortunately, the media has completely diminished in the country. Journalists are not brave uh, enough to report or even tweet or, or, or share anything for fear of of, um, of uh, Taliban um, uh, repercussions and, and what they may do. So we, it's our responsibility. We need to, to highlight those stories from across Afghanistan. Uh, and we, we also need to have a responsibility when it comes to monitoring human rights abuses uh, to hold the Taliban to account. Uh, the more silent we are, the more confident they will become to continue uh, their actions. And finally, I think more importantly than anything, as a woman myself, we need to ensure that we don't uh, allow the ban on girls' education to continue. I mean, in what world is that acceptable in the 21st century? A ge- more, uh, first of all, Afghanistan's made up of 75 potentially more than that, percent uh, under 25. It's a very, very young generation. There's also more than probably around half is made of, of young women. Um, what is their future? And when you ban school, uh, secondary education, it also um, simu- simultaneously will mean that university enrollment will also stop. And so when it comes to um, producing doctors uh, and teachers, there won't be any. Um, the future of Afghanistan is very bleak if half of the population is ignored. And I think as one of the leading humanitarian countries in the world, Britain has always had a big role when it comes to girls' education. We must not stay silent, whether it's the Taliban or not. It is our responsibility to call it out and to ensure that girls have access to basic education in Afghanistan. Shabnam, can I just ask, we are getting a lot of questions from the audience now, so I want to rattle through as many of them as possible in the time that we've got left. One of the questions coming in from the audience actually asks what we can do about that. You know, As you said, the West should pressure the Taliban. How do we realistically do that? Well, look, I think firstly, it includes dialogue with the Taliban. The reality is that the Taliban, Taliban are in power now. I, I'm not saying we need to recognize the group, uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't speak to them on an ongoing basis. Um, th- and, and to hold them to account, that they need, we need to stop being fearful of the consequences uh, of us um, enforcing certain regulations. Potentially, even there could be a human rights uh, body that the UN uh, could oversee or, or set up specifically based uh, uh, um, uh, focusing on Afghanistan that can monitor 
not only girls' education, but every other human rights abuse that, go, that goes on every day. But this is a very, very, very serious uh, matter. And it deserves a lot more attention than, it, than, than it's been getting. Every, everything that I've been hearing so far when it comes to a girls' education has only come from women from Afghanistan. Uh, and that's it. Where are the global feminist voices? Where are the feminist foreign policy nations? How are we talking about feminism when we ignore a huge uh, a nation like Afghanistan? Um, and, and that shouldn't be happening. It, 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 it's, it's a global responsibility. Um, so it, it, it will involve forming some sort of coalition, working under some sort of international organization and, and really finding... Well, if they're not, I mean, if it's if they're not going to be on board, we need to put pressure, uh, and and that's the end of it. I mean, unfortunately, that's not uh, as far as anyone would like to go. But when it comes to the future of of millions of young girls um, who have no hope in the country, we need to stand up for them. And if if they can't uh, make their voices heard, th that's what we're here for. And and it will be incredibly shameful um, if. Um, we don't stand, stand up for, for girls in Afghanistan after 20 years of investment in aid and, and focus. And particularly because the Afghan women and girls have actually were advocates and champions for our democracy and our, our sort of liberal freedom rights in Afghanistan. They've been fighting day in, day out. Even after August, I'm sure you've seen in the media, the, ones, the, the, the people that have been coming out in protest for any, any sort of, uh, whether it's girls' education or any other human rights abuses, have been women. I mean, that is courageous and we should not allow them to stand on their own. I mean, that's that's it, it, there are difficult conversations to be had, but it, we need to begin looking at a strategy moving forward. Jeremy, we've got a question here from Ewan Grant in London, who's a, a former UK law enforcement um, officer who's worked in Central Asia and Pakistan. He asks, along a similar line, I suppose, to sort of our supplying pressure on, on women's rights, he asks, what official and unofficial Western links with Afghanistan continue for political and humanitarian reasons? And he notes that the Taliban doesn't seem to be terribly angry about the killing of al-Zawahiri. Well, to start with, there are a lot, to start with, there are lots of links with the Taliban going on because large sums of money are being put into Afghanistan to deal with these enormous humanitarian problems. And uh, and that's the reason why there hasn't been a total unmitigated humanitarian disaster. I mean, there have been terrible privations. I've seen it in the work that many colleagues have done there. But people were predicting something even worse than that. And that's the difference is organizations like the World Food Program, who have very developed links with the Taliban, um, because even before the collapse of the old government, they in areas controlled by the Taliban, they were working with them anyway. Uh, so they're, you know, working out, they wouldn't be able to run convoys in the country if it wasn't for all of that. On the security level, it's not quite clear to me on the degree to which they're being spoken to. I imagine not a great deal, but I imagine some. The Americans did speak quite extensively to the Taliban at the time of their um the time that, that they were pulling out the head of the of the CIA was there talking to them uh a year ago now have they done more of that i think probably not a great deal and there are um there are as far as i know there are very few foreign embassies that even that have reopened the place but i think certainly on the un and the humanitarian level the international committee of the red cross they have um 
they have connections. Uh, there's been some interesting reporting about differences within the Taliban, say on the subject of girls' education. There was a very long piece in the New York Times, which I commend to people, that was out in the last week or so, uh, where they looked into it in quite some detail. And they had interviews with people who were saying, well, you know, we were expecting this to happen uh, back in March, and it didn't because the elements within, you know, it is not it is not a single um, homogeneous body there. But yes, in terms of uh, and the business of the of al-Zawahiri's uh, killing there in Kabul, well, in, in a sense, it does show the degree to which the American project there failed, because let's not forget, it started back after 9-11, when the Americans said, you give up al-Qaeda or we will come in and get them and we will overthrow you as well, the Taliban. The Taliban wouldn't give them up. And in terms of putting pressure on the Taliban, it is difficult when what you've done is effectively gone to war with them, killed loads of their people, and then decided there's not a fight you want to be part of anymore. So once you've, they can, they can say to themselves, well, we looked them in the eye and they blinked and they went home and we're still here. So it's it's very hard to get leverage with them. And one of the things that people were wondering a year ago, I remember talking to a very senior diplomat who based in Pakistan, Western diplomat, who said, look, to 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 um stop disaster happening, we need we really do need to have uh some kind of elements that we need a viable Taliban government because someone has to run the country. Uh, because otherwise it'll be even worse than people would think. So it's a, you know, it's a complicated, quite nuanced situation. But no, bottom line is people are really suffering at their hands as well. That's not, you know, I'm trying to, in trying to explain it. I'm not trying to forgive what they're trying, what they're doing, what they've done to women, what they've done to people who disagree with them, stuff like that. It's a very, very tough life for people there right now. Jeremy, we've got another question here, which is just asking, is there a model of nation building which could have worked in Afghanistan? Well, my contention, and um, Shabnam, I have to disagree with a bit of what you said about when you were addressing this point, is that Western intervention tends not to work. If you look at the record of Western intervention, not just in Afghanistan, but in lots of other countries and in the you know, the region I know well, the Middle East, uh, Western intervention there has most of the time, when it's on a governmental or a military level, it has made matters worse, not better. So while people should be encouraged and technical help given in building institutions, the kind of state that functions is one that has functioning, fair, institutions that are not totally corrupted, that has a court system that works, that has government ministries that work, that has uh, law enforcement that is not corrupt and is not uh, overly violent. Uh, those are the kinds of states that can be viable. And sadly, the way it worked out with the, the model of nation building that they attempted to do in Afghanistan was it emerged after 20 years and billions of dollars with none of those things. Shabnam, for you, was it was it just sort of a question of us staying longer or, or do you do you think there were problems with the model of nation building itself? And I'll, just to come on to that, um, look, I'm not saying that Western intervention works for Afghanistan. I think, firstly, 
when it comes to what the future holds for the country, we need to f- understand that our knowledge of Afghanistan and its history is very limited. Afghanistan is a very tribal country. It has always been foreign aid dependent. It, in some ways, it's not been set up to be a modern state. And so Afghanistan can't find solutions, a political solution, a, 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 a governance solution without a helping hand. It's been a centralized nation or, or it's always had a centralized government. And so it's made up of different ethnic groups and different segments of, uh, within Afghanistan where many of them don't agree on, on, their, on the way they want to live and their lifestyle and the way they want to be governed. Over the last 20 years, I completely agree. There's been corruption. Um, money that was that went into the country was stolen by those in government. It's it's it was very clear. Um, the the intervention was also very uh, Kabul centralized. So rural communities across different provinces didn't actually uh, reap the, the the rewards of the intervention. Um, and so I think the conversation moving forward is is not about that. It's not the fact that the intervention didn't work or nation building doesn't work. It's the kind of model that works for Afghanistan. And we need to find a way. For example, there are already suggestions around uh, federalism, where it's worked across different countries around the world. Switzerland is, is an example. So is Germany, um, where different provinces potentially there could be hubs of provinces that could work together to to set up gov- governors uh, that will report to the the, the Kabul, but will be able to run their own regions in the way they want to. For example, uh, even today, the Taliban are accepted in, some, in, in many ways in some southern provinces, but aren't in northern provinces. Now, people should have the, cho- the choice to pick the kind of uh, regime they want uh, to be governed by. And if the Taliban is an option for certain parts of Afghanistan, well, that's fine. But other parts should have the choice to say no. We don't want this kind of regime, this kind of rule. Um, as, as, so I think moving forward for the future of the country, first of all, there are lots of lessons to be learnt. Um, the fact and the manner of, of America's departure has enabled our a- adversaries to claim that the West is not a dependable partner and uh, is instead a great power in decline. And in an era with which uh, in which deterrence is of growing importance. This is not trivial. Um, so I think what follows is, is not an exercise in relitigation or finger pointing, uh, though we'll ine- inevitably that, that will be, there will be some of that. Uh, neither is it about absolving ourselves. Uh, I think it's about understanding the country itself. Uh, and this is going to take potentially years uh, of, of, like Paul mentioned earlier, um, reviewing and investigating, understanding, speaking to the people of Afghanistan, uh, uh, providing co- uh, uh, con- consultative sort of mechanisms where, where we uh, where we understand what is the vision of people in Afghanistan for the future of the country, because that's the only way we'll find a solution, not uh, um, uh, a, a system from the outside, but from within. Um, however, having said that, we. Afghanistan can't be left alone to do that on their own. It, they don't. They don't have the power, uh, the, the the skills, uh, or the the track record, um, and sometimes even the uh, unity to be able to de- to do that together. It will end up in a civil war, in bloodshed, 
Um, and so that's where the role we play. It, it's what what kind of um, potentially even neutral role role that we can uh, um, have within um, Afghanistan, where we support uh, and ensure different groups are being heard into forming an inclusive or, or um, any other form of government that, that Afghanistan deserves and rightly needs. But Western intervention in whatever form that's going to be is needed. The country can't do it on its own. We are completely out of time, I fear, but I just wanted to ask all of you very, very quickly, um, sort of one sentence each, what, what is your great hope for, for Afghanistan? Starting with Jeremy. Well, that there isn't another war and that they have some kind of peace and that in the end, if there are more reasonable elements within the Taliban, they prevail instead of the, you know, the old long-bearded guys who were there in the 90s and are still there now because they can't manage that, then it is back to the, the 90s, I'm afraid, and maybe worse still. Paul? I mean, I hope that the West, as you say, if you break it, you own it, that the West maintains its engagement with Afghans. Um, because, as I say, I think economic development... Uh, the multipolar geopolitics with China and Russia now back in the game, India and Pakistan both back in a great game in Central Asia, um, will mean that the, that 75% of Afghans who are currently you, young, will the future is in play for them. Um, and so I think that w the best we can do is to remember that the people who build nations are nations. And soft power from the point of view of a mature, developed democracy, is the is the strongest power that one can exert in aiding those forces who do want to build a law-abiding nation that's part of the international system. There's, beyond that, what the last 20 years has shown is that, that even the most powerful state in the world can't do more. Shabnam, very briefly, your, your great hope for Afghanistan? I'll put it really quickly and simply that it isn't forgotten. Um, we, we, it's, it's vital and incredibly important that we understand that at the end of this war and violence, never-ending war that, Af that the, the people of Afghanistan are facing, there are real human beings, but real stories. Uh, and there are people on the other side who deserve our help, our attention, uh, and who, who just want to live peacefully. Um, and I think the least we can do is stand by them. Thanks very much. Thank you to all of our guests. That's Shabnam Nasimi, Jeremy Bowen, Paul Mason. Thank you to everybody who tuned in and sent in questions. And thank you to Intelligent Squared for hosting this event. If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month, ad-free listening and early access to currently available via Apple Podcasts. You just need to hit the subscribe button. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry, we're working on something for you too. Thanks for being a listener, supporting Intelligence Squared, and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. 
We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.